The winds of change are blowing, and it's easy to get lost and off track. Hi, I'm Renee Barabow, the practical shaman, Hay House author of Winds of Spirit, a wind whistler, and soul coat. This is a show for pioneers who want to learn to navigate the world with a chaotic spin awake. Hello and welcome back. I'm Renee Barabal, the Practical Shaman, and I'm with a very interesting guest today. His name is John Perkins, and you've probably heard about him. He's written many, many books. Uh, he's an activist and author of 10 books on global intrigue, shamanism, transformation, including the classic Confessions of an Economic Hitman. As a former chief econo con con economist, at a major consultant firm, he advised the World Bank, United Nations, Fortune 500 corporations, and governments. He regularly speaks at university, economic forums, and shamanic gatherings around the world, and is the founder and board member of the Pachamama Alliance and Dream Change. And he's written a new book called Touching the Jaguar. And appropriately or not, I have my, my tiger sitting there in the back keeping <laughs> score, and he's got his that he's wearing and we're here to talk about this new book which I, I really found fascinating because I remember reading the Confessions of an Economic Hitman and actually attended a workshop of what it was a shape-shifting it was one of your books called shape-shifting yes yeah so the book and that so here we are now we're shape-shifting and talking about a, a global economic world in one book and I don't know anywhere before that I've read where somebody's actually crossed the lines and talked about that and what a more timely time to talk about something like this when we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic where we just watched that them shut down the world economy and we all went into our houses closed the doors and said I'm going to sit home and, and stay at home meanwhile I know I didn't have access to money in my bank for uh, that I tried to transfer around for 10 days. And the whole thing has gotten me really concerned. Um, not that I don't have respect for, you know, this virus, which I believe has its own consciousness going on, but also to see how fast we could be heralded like sheep into our house and told to sit there until we were ready to come out. So what do you think about that? Well, Renee, I, I thanks for having me on your show, incidentally. And uh, yeah, I, I want to. So you get your tiger in the background. Here's my jaguar touching the jaguar with a big anaconda uh, behind Love it. it. <laughs> um, so you know this expression, touching the jaguar. I first heard it back in 1969, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer living deep in the Amazon rainforest in Shwa territory. This is an indigenous group of people that were hunters and gatherers at the time. They, they, they've gone through a lot of changes in recent years. But I was dying. I was very, very sick. I couldn't keep any food down. I, I couldn't stand up. I certainly couldn't take, take the three-day trip, which involved hiking through a very dense forest and then a two-day ride in a rickety old bus if I could find one up into the Andes to the nearest medical facility. There's just no way I could do that. <laughs> and the shaman healed me in one night. And basically what he did was he took me on this vision quest, a shamanic journey, if you will. Um, and during that shamanic journey, I, I saw something a little hazy in front of me as I'm in, I'm in this uh, altered state. And he says to me, I hear his voice saying, Touch the jaguar. And I looked all around like, where's a, a jaguar? Oh, my God. You know, like, we got to run. And, and then he says, no, 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 touch the jaguar. And suddenly this amorphous vision that I had shapeshifted into a jaguar. I saw a jaguar in front of me in this vision quest. And uh, I reached out and touched it. And later he would teach me that, you know, the, 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 the jaguar in a vision quest represents something that stands in your way but when you touch it it gives you energy courage wisdom it gives you what you need to move forward and in this particular case when i touched the jaguar what immediately i heard a voice like my mother's saying son the food and drink will kill you well the, the background on that is that uh, i was raised of 300 years of yankee calvinist in new hampshire vermont connecticut and we were very hygienic, washed our hands a lot, ate very 
simple, uh, <laughs> boring food, really, when you come right down to it. And now suddenly I'm living with people who have never seen a bar of soap. And they ate some very, what to me were very strange foods, squirming white grubs or a delicacy, you know, and, and they never drink river water because they know the rivers have organic matter. It's not safe to drink the water. So they drink a kind of beer called chicha, which is made by the women chewing manioc root and spitting it. It sets up a fermentation pro uh, process that creates a kind of beer that then you can add water to it because it's alcoholic and it, 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 it cures, it, you know, it, it makes it safe to drink. So I'm drinking a lot of chicha and eating a lot of these strange foods because that's, that's all there is. There's no Perrier, there's no Cliff Bars. And what I realized is that in this vision quest, it's Jago, when I touched it, I realized there's this voice, every time I ate these foods or drank this spit beer, a voice said, it'll kill you. At the same time, I saw that the schwa were very, very healthy, extremely robust, vital people. And they, they live to be very old if they don't die in a hunting accident. Or, uh, in those days, infant mortality rates were fairly high. So there were mitigating circumstances. But if you get through that and didn't get bitten by a snake or fall out of a dugout canoe. Or get you your head chopped off. <laughs> you're likely to live to be very old. Yeah, there, were, there was warfare going on too, right? Uh, and that's another story of how they've changed their perception. But anyway, so that night I, I saw that it wasn't the food and drink that was killing me. It was my perception, my mindset. And the next morning I, I felt great. And the, the shaman eventually demanded in payment that I become his apprentice. Now this is 1969. <laughs> Renee, and I just graduated from business school. I never even heard of a shaman until I, I got there. And there was no future in shamanism in 1969. There, there is now, but in those days it wasn't. I had no interest in training with a shaman, but he'd saved my life. So I did. And what I learned from him, and then later as I traveled around the world in, in, in later years and studied with shamans in Indonesia and Iran and, and Egypt and all over Latin America and other places, I, I came to learn the same thing this man told me. He said, you know, reality is molded by perception. And when you think about it, Rene, um, there's no United States, there's no Canada, there's no Russia, uh, there's no corporations, there's no religion, there's no culture, except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it, it has a huge impact on reality. That's shamanism. It's also psychotherapy. It's also quantum physics. It's also marketing. It's advertising. We know that our world as humans really is created by our perceptions. And that's a, that was the key uh, to, to shamanism as I learned it. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of rituals that go on that help people change their perceptions depending on the culture you're in. You know, you take shamanic journeys if you're with the Shua and the Amazon. If you're sitting, if you're an American, you, you go to a psychotherapist who does it through words. It, change, it helps you change your perception through words. There's many different rituals that, that, that healers around the world do differently depending on the, the, the language of the culture. But it all boils down to that. And when you come right down to it, that's right now we, we're in a situation where we've created a, a, a global economic system that isn't working, what I call a death economy. But it's all created by a perception. And we can get into that later, but I'm going to stop now and let, let, let you think. I, I like this idea of a perception. So I, so I do, I believe that we, we, you forgot the wind, by the way. So I don't know if you, I have a book called Winds of Spirit. Uh, and that before we divided ourselves, everything was on the wind and, and there's, you know, so the messages can come on the wind and how we perceive them is a whole other story. But how, why now on this book? Why, why, why did you finally think that this was the time to put the two worlds together? And I mean, it's so perfectly timed for, you know, this, this dying economy. And, you know, I have no idea where these 30 million people are going to return to work i mean so it, it's gonna we're gonna we're gonna rot here in this economy very soon and i don't mean that from a negative place i mean because i think as a shaman that we go in these cycles so where, where do you see this cycle heading well of course when i wrote the book renee i had no idea we were going to have a coronavirus 
but as it turns out, the book is perfect for this time. What I did know is that we were experiencing hurricanes and tidal waves and fires and earthquakes and other once in 100 year events every year or so. Mm -hmm. What I did know is that the earth, Pachamama, if you will, the universe, the earth was speaking very clearly to us that the system we've created doesn't work. You can look at that from a shamanic standpoint. It's a living earth, Pachamama, and it's speaking to us. It's sending us messages. Or you can look at it from a purely scientific industrial standpoint and say, hey, you know, we, the, the, the virus has taught us that when you close down the economy of, of China, suddenly the Chinese people can see the stars mm-hmm. in Los Angeles and other places. So it's very clear that from no matter what, what, what end of the spectrum you're at, whether it's purely scientific or the purely shamanic or someplace along that spectrum, we're, being, we're getting a very strong message. So I knew mm-hmm. that. And I, I've always understood the connection between shamanism and economics, that economics is totally built on the idea of altering perceptions. And my job as an economic hitman was to create the perception in other countries, countries that had resources our corporations wanted, that they needed to accept huge loans from us so we could basically get at their resources. Uh, this, it's a longer story, but that was, it was creating this perception through sophisticated economic models and reports. Again, the perception that then controlled reality. I would speak at shamanic conventions or, or workshops at places like Omega or, or Cortez Island, that we talked about earlier, or Esalen or wherever. And people would say, well, you're not the same guy that wrote those books on economics, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, are you? And I would speak at big business conferences in places that I, everywhere. I spoke in Russia, I spoke in China, and all of the United States at business conferences. And people would say, you're not the guy who wrote shape-shifting and the world is as you dream it in those books on shamanism, are you? And to me, there was always a complete connection that was never overtly expressed because mm-hmm. I didn't talk about shamanism in the, in the economic books. And I didn't talk a lot about the global economy in the shaman books. But so I decided I needed to write this book at a time when it was obvious that our current governmental social economic system, something that I classify in total as a death economy, is failing us. There's no question about it. Or are we failing it? Yeah, yes. And the coronavirus is just the latest shakeup, the latest message from Pachamama that we've got to change, that our systems are not working for us. So... Um, I didn't totally get all the way through the book, and you're telling me that at the end there's some really good ideas on how we can do that. Would you like to share one of your favorite ones? Well, you know, so at the the book goes through a lot of stories. I'm a storyteller. I love to tell stories. They're all true stories, but I, I write them so they'll they'll be fun to read for a lot of people rather than just boring economics or boring shamanism. <laughs> ones that are stories. And in the process, and then at the end, I summarize this as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a process that each of us can do for 10 minutes a day or, or, or every other day or once a week, whatever we want. But and there's a process that builds up to it. But in, in a very quick summary, what I would say is, is you start by asking five questions. The first question is, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest satisfaction? What's my bliss? Why am I here on this planet at this time? Another way to look at it is, if I were lying on the proverbial deathbed and looking back, what would I be most grateful for what I had done or what would I have regrets that I hadn't done? And so you gotta define that. What is that? What do I really wanna do beginning today for the rest of my life? And the second question is, how does that tie in with making a better world for my family or my city, my nation, the world, whatever, because all of us get much more satisfaction if we do, if we follow our own dream and we tie that in with a larger dream where we're helping others. How does that tie in? And the third question is what's blocked me from doing it? What are the Jaguars that have kept me or might keep me in the future from realizing my dream? And the, the fourth question is what do I have to do to touch that Jaguar? How do I change that perception? And I'll give you an example in just a minute. And the fifth one is what actions do I take every day to make that happen? So an example, Renee, 
is the first question for me personally. I'll just answer this for me personally, but it could be anybody for whatever it is. But for me personally, what is, gives me the most satisfaction? Writing. I love to write. I totally love to write. That's the favorite thing I can do during the day. Uh, how can I, second question, how do I relate that to the larger community? I write stories that inspire people to transform the death economy into a life economy and have fun doing it, make it fun. The third question, what Jaguar stand in my way? Well, here's originally a, a Jaguar was, I, I went in high school where I went to, my dad taught at a boys prep school where I went to school. Uh, I was a good writer. I was editor of the newspaper, won the short story prize a couple of years. When I went to college, my freshman year, an English teacher criticized my writing, never gave me anything above the sea. It totally discouraged me. I quit college as a result of English major. I got a D the first time I wrote something. Well, told me my event wasn't significant. <laughs> there you go. And what that does to you, you know, for me, it was like writing is the most important thing in my life. If, and this professor was a published author, highly respected. I thought, well, if I if he if my writing is no good, then I'm devastated. I'm I'm going to give up. I, I can't I can't put my neck out on the line again on something I love so much. Eventually, I went back to school and became and studied economics and became a business major and and an economist. And so that that was the jaguar. That was the blockage. You, you know, that was one. There've been a number of others along the way, but um, and then the the the, the, the fourth question: uh, How do we change our perception? How do we touch that jaguar? Well, at some point, it struck me that professor was just a human being, and he might be wrong. And in fact, I remember that he had criticized Bob Dylan's writing, and Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature. <laughs> what does that tell you, you know? So the professor was wrong, maybe. And that, so I touched that Jaguar and I changed my perception. Hey, it's not about him. It's about me. I can write. I need to write. And so that leads us to the fifth question. What actions do I take on a daily basis? Well, I have to write. A writer has to write. You know, if we think an inspiration is going to just, we wait for inspiration, we'll wait forever. But if we write every day, the inspiration comes. And we have to practice, you know. We have to be willing to throw out a lot of what we write as writers, just like a pianist. Concert pianist has to practice for a thousand hours for every hour they're on the stage. A tennis player has to practice for many, many hours for every hour they're on the circuit. A writer has to keep writing. So, and you can, you can use that formula whether you're a plumber or, or an architect or a carpenter or a podcast host, or I'm sure you've gone through plenty of your own Jaguars before you, you, you took the leap and started doing this podcast. No, so, podcast was easy. The writing, I, I held that story from my uh, college professor for many years and Trust me, I had to learn how to write when I wrote Winds of Spirit, and I had to change that perception. But then when, you know, I won the Nautilus Gold in religion, I knew that I had overcome that, that touched that. But tell, this is what I'd like to know. So maybe many people who are going to be listening to this are, got unemployed here. They're, they're, they don't have that resources that, you know, so how would you tell them to face that jaguar of, impending you know financial right. ruin yeah well it's hard to generalize but everybody who's listening has passion mm -hmm. and everybody who's listening has skills and i don't know what all your passions and skills are but i know you have them and um this coronavirus you you, you can sit at home you can be self-isolating and say my gosh, I can't continue doing this for another week. Forget about another month or two or whatever it's going to be. I, I'm, a social, I'm a social animal. I, I can't do this. Or I've lost my job. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go broke. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm tearing my hair out. Uh, this virus has given us the opportunity to touch that jaguar. And the jaguar will tell you something like, oh, well, you always wanted to learn how to play the flute. You got a flute at home. Uh, and the, you can go on the Internet and learn how to play it. So take this as an opportunity. You always wanted to, to write a book or paint a painting. Paint that, like you painted that beautiful uh, tiger behind you, you know? Um, or you always wanted to have more time to get on the phone to your relatives who live overseas. Uh, you wanted to learn yoga, whatever it is. Uh, use this time, touch that Jaguar, and the Jaguar will let you know that there's benefits that have come out of this. And those benefits, if you relate them to your passion and your skills, you'll come up with answers. 
let's take a a, a, a a waitress at a at a restaurant who's been laid off and is fearful of the income. Uh, well, I think it's time for that waitress uh, to really think about what does she want to do uh, for the rest of her life. Does she want to continue being a waitress? If so, then wait it out and you'll continue, or maybe even think about how you might even open your own service as a as a waitress, and maybe even do it through the internet, delivering food to people. Or maybe you were just doing, you were a waitress because all you used to go up to tables and say to people, hey, I'm, I'm a waitress, and I'm a good waitress, but what I really want to do is be an actress, <laughs> or a writer, or a painter. I'm just doing this to, to save money so I can do what I really want to do. Well, if, if that's the case, now's the time to do what you really want to do as much as possible. Uh, I think every one of us can look at that. And again, in the book, you know, it starts with those five questions I mentioned, but then there's a daily practice. Like I said, you don't have to do it every day, but it's, it's no more than 10 minutes where you actually write some of these things out and each day you look at that and you make a commitment during that day to do something. And it could be something as small as, as uh, sending a tweet. But let's say somebody's passion is to turn uh, some corporation around to make a corporation greener. Let's say, I don't Nike. Okay, then then you can get up every morning and and, and write a, a tweet to Nike saying, "Hey, I love your product. I'm not going to buy it anymore until you pay your workers in Indonesia a better salary, hmm. uh, a living wage." And then you send it out to all your networking circles, and you get them to send it out to all theirs. And then maybe you come up with a podcast just about this. And maybe it grows into not just being about Nike, but being about other corporations. I mean, there's an opportunity here. It could start very, very small, one tweet or whatever. Or it could be as big as tomorrow deciding that you're going you're gonna to run for president. <laughs> you're going to run for public office or something. So, but the important thing is every day do something. As a writer, I know every day I need to write. Now, yeah, I can skip a day or two. If I have, you know, got something else on my plate, I'm doing a lot of interviews these days like this one. Maybe I'm not going to write today, but this is all part of that process, getting the message out. So don't be hard on yourself. But the important thing, Renee, is to really follow your bliss. Do what you really, really want to do in life. Because otherwise, no matter how much money you make or what happens to you, you're not going to be happy. This is an opportunity for each and every one of us to dig deep into what is our bliss. What do we most want to do for the rest of our lives? And start planning on that and, and doing whatever we can at this moment to make that happen. But the virus is here to teach us some very, very important lessons. Do you think we're learning the lesson? I hope so. I think a lot of people are. I, and, and what we've, we've started before the virus, so there's, a, there's been a cultural revolution shaking the world. You know, I, I speak around the world in many different countries that my books are published in just about almost 40 languages sold over two million copies there so i've i've been traveling around the world in the last decade or two speaking in many places and everywhere i go i've seen that there's many many people waking up to the fact that we live on a tiny space station that i would call this living earth and we're we're like the pilots of the space station we we really control where it goes We've been doing a bad job. We've been navigating toward disaster. And these once in 100 year events that have been happening so frequently were, were a message, but we didn't really listen to them. We saw them as local events. Uh, the, the, the virus now is, is a big message. It's a big shake. It's a big twitch that the earth is it's truly speaking to us and telling us, we've got to change. And, and that, that I think people in China are getting it, people in Russia are getting it, people in Mexico are getting it, all over the world, people are getting it. Now, at the same time, when there's a, any revolution, and this is indeed a consciousness revolution, an awakening, there's always a pushback. So you've got those who sit at the top of the economic pyramid uh, saying, no, I don't want change. I get the power, I got the money. Let's stop this. What we want to do is get back to normal. And for them, normal means this death economy where you've got a very, very small percentage of people who have more than three quarters of the world's wealth. We don't want to go back to normal, but they're going to try to push us back. It happens in every revolution, whether it's the Industrial Revolution or an Artistic Revolution or the American Revolution. Whatever it is, there's always a, a pushback from those who represent the status quo. And the revolutionaries, and maybe that's too strong a word, those, the agents of change, us, the agents of new consciousness, take energy. 
from the pushback. We say, hey, if our president is really pushing back this hard, we must be winning. <laughs> and we take energy from that, like a good martial artist. We, we, don't, we don't fight the energy, we don't try to push back. We use that energy and throw it back at them and, and, take, and energize ourselves from that. And I think that's where we're at now. So will we move into a life economy, transforming this death economy into a life economy that cleans up pollution, regenerates destroyed environments, pays people to come up with new technologies, et cetera, et cetera? Or will we revert to the old system? We don't know for sure, but I think there's an incredibly good probability that we'll go into the new one. And I think the coronavirus has increased that probability significantly. So and you, you feel that the steps to this new life economy are that everyone says, all right, enough already. I want to do exactly, you know, what I love to do and my passions are to do, and I'm going to start doing that instead. Or do you, I'm, I'm concerned that I'm seeing a revolution within the, say, what we considered the light workers, the shamans, the, that this morning I came out and said something because, you know, I might believe one way about a mask or not a mask or, or being respectful and somebody threw back at me, well, you just must be a Trump supporter. And I didn't really feel like it mattered whether I was supporting Trump or Joe Biden or whoever else, you know, is up there. I, I felt it was more an issue of humanity and people are taking what used to be a human issue, a shamanic, a healing issue, and now lumping it in with my political ideations and things like that. So. I, I'm tending to think that we could have a revolution within our own country space of that doesn't talk about breaking apart even more, that we're, we're still in the breaking apart. Yeah. Did the shamans talk to you about that, about this time? Well, yes, they've been talking about it for a very long time. Uh, shamans that I work <clears> with, uh, particularly the ones in the Amazon, the Ashwa and the Shwa, I do a lot of work. You're one of the co-founders of the Pachamama Alliance, and we've been deeply involved in this, and incidentally, the book goes into that a lot, the story of the founding of that organization. Uh, the Kogi in Colombia, the Maya in Central America and, and, and around the world, uh, shamans have been predicting this for a long time, that we would need to go through a major change. But I think if we, if we really look at, and I, I think your point is extremely well taken, is divisiveness. In fact, if we consider that to a very large degree, our lives are, are very tied in with the governmental social economic system. And, and it's hard to imagine not having that power there in some form. So the real question is, how do we transform all of our mm -hmm. relationships with that? And if we look at the death economy, it is built on a perception. And that perception is that the goal of business is to maximize short-term profits for a few wealthy individuals, essentially, regardless of the social and environmental costs. That's created this horrible system, totally unbalanced. It's, it's behind all the other crises that we see, climate change, income inequality, species extinction, even terrorism and the, the virus are si simply symptoms of this overall global death economy. And it's based on this one assumption, maximize short-term profits, or for individuals, maximize your short-term consumer materialism that's mm. that's the premise now a lot of your listeners don't don't buy that and i respect that but but that is the overarching i'm missing my home goods i will i will tell you like i like to you know <laughs> yeah. we're all or my spring clothing or or these things like so is this something we're going to have to learn to say well you know and the problem is is they make these clothes that only last one season Yes. So, so, like, how do we how do we shift? Where do you know? So, so the life economy is based on a, a new perception. The goal is to maximize long term benefits for people and nature, okay. uh, and and you know we buy from we buy products that do that that maximize the long term benefits. We look at the overall cost, including the hidden costs, of what economists call the external costs. Of, of products. We look at all of this. Uh, I think that moving into a life economy doesn't mean we go back to living in caves or, or some way that's very uncomfortable. It means that we truly move into a situation where people are paid to, instead of making stupid things or, or weapons, uh, we, we, we pay companies like the ones that currently make weapons, like General Dynamics, to instead of making weapons, make uh, processes that clean up the pollution 
in the oceans. They mine all the plastic. They regenerate destroyed environments. We, we give investors a decent rate of return who invest in these kinds of things. Uh, and, and we can all be, be part of this. So it's, it's about changing that perception. It's about moving into a perception of long-term benefits. And incidentally, that's how indigenous people have always lived, life economy. You and I, all of your listeners, we all come from indigenous people at some point. If you think about it, human beings as we know ourselves go back about 250, uh, 250,000 years. And um, of that time, almost all of it, we lived in life economies. It's only been with the blink of the eye and historically that we've created- About the last 12,000 years. Yeah, well, the last few decades, it's really- well, okay, it, all right, all right. It probably goes <laughs> I'm back- I'm going back a little further, but- No, it, it does go back further, it, it's the beginnings, but it's really taken off in my lifetime since World War II is when this has really, really, really hit us. But if we change that perception, uh, we move into a new way of valuing things. And incidentally, I think there's a lot of good signs that we're doing that. There's B corporations, benefit corporations, there's the whole idea of the new of the of the green new deal of conscious capitalism uh recently you know last august 192 of the world's most powerful most successful ceos came together at the at the, at the business round table and made a statement that that the goal can no longer be just to maximize profits it has to be to take care of all the stakeholders and including the communities where, where corporations work that was a big statement now you and i all of us consumers all of us uh, everybody who consumes or invests in or works for these corporations we need to pressure those CEOs and all the others to follow through on this, to, to do what they need to do. And we can all do that more easily than ever today because of social networking. We can, we can organize consumer campaigns. We can support these presidents and say, hey, this is what you said you'd do. And now we're going to help you do this by insisting that, you, that we only will buy from the corporations that are working in this direction. So this is going to be a far out question for you. So. We're going to make you back to the economic hitman, but we're going to put you in your white cape and we're going to drop you into this, uh, this, let's just, we won't give you the whole world today. We'll just give you the United States or, and, and so, you know, you've been sent here and what, give us a couple of tools that each of us can use in the coming weeks. And you've been giving us a few here. Like, so if you were being sent into the United States to reorganize us into this life economy, where would you start? Well, I would start as a writer and a speaker and doing what I do because that's what I do best. And that's where my passion lies. I'm not going to go out and try to be a politician because I wouldn't be a good one. And, and I'd probably be torn apart too. You know, I've confessed to a lot of things that, that politicians don't want to admit they've done. I've written about them. Uh, so I would do what I most enjoy doing and do best, but I would, I would keep focusing it on changing the system. So that's what, you know, the, the, the book that you, that you held up, Impressions I mean, excuse me, Touching the Jaguar, the, the subtitle, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World. That's what I do. I teach, I try to inspire people to do that. Now, if you happen to be, let's say, a carpenter, what do you do? Well, again, you probably don't want to run for president. Uh, you probably, probably think, they, think that would be a waste of your time. It probably would be. But what you want to do is you want to work with wood and you want to make a better world, you make that commitment, so you're going to work with sustainable wood. And you're going to tell your clients, hey, we're going to do all this with sustainable wood. And so that's, that's the first the two answers. What do I like to do? I like to be a carpenter. How am I going to make a better world? I'm going to use sustainable products. What's the Jaguar that stands in my way? Ah, my clients are saying, ah, but the sustainable products cost a little more. I can't afford A lot that. more. And so you say, so you touch the, that Jaguar. What does the Jaguar have to say? The Jaguar says, that's not a cost. It's an investment in the future. Hmm. It's an investment in your future and in your children's future and your grandchildren's future. You're not paying. This is not a cost. You're investing. This is an investment. And so that's how you turn that around. You change that perception. That's the fourth step. You create this new perception and you tell your clients, you help them create the perception that they're not that not, this is not a cost, it's a very wise investment. And the third step is, I mean, the fifth step is what actions do you take? Well, you go, 
and you start to that you start to only build with those products. Build with them, and you and you tell your clients why you're doing this and and the importance of it. You talk to them in your own way, and the, you know we can say that about any profession you're in. You can find a way to do to to to, to do all of those five steps. And in the book, it goes beyond that into this daily practice that, that incorporates those. So I think there's a there's a way that every one of us can contribute to this and do it in a way that's really fun that allows us to enjoy our lives and to feel satisfied with what we're doing. I have a question that's going to be a little more um, personal kind of question. So as a, as a, a woman shaman who's like gone through, you know, many fires and touched many jaguars, I, I want to know why, what you think about this, that over the the you you mentioned right at the beginning so this is fair fair game that you were a privileged white male and so all of the like the early shamans who went in into the jungles in the 70s and the 60s tended to be privileged white males so why do you think that is is it because at that time only privileged white males could go to the jungle or why why were were they trying to teach you? Were they trying? To, I'm just, it's, it's kind of a baffling question. Like, because a lot of the times over the years, I've worked with a lot of women who've then had to, who've had to get rid of the teacher in order for the teaching. And so why now we come out and a lot of the messages, where is that transformation in you? That you became from the privileged white male to now saying, hey, you can do these few steps and we're gonna change this economy together. Right. Well, I'm still a privileged white male, of okay. course. I, 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 that, that's how I was born. And, and no matter what I do in life, I'll always have the privilege of a white male. If a police officer stops me for speeding, I don't expect that I'm gonna be dragged out of the car and told to put my hands on the top of the car and be, and be beaten up or frisked badly or I don't expect to be treated like that because I'm a privileged white male, mm -hmm. and and that disgusts me. I mean, I'm, I'm 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 I think that's a horrible situation. It's it's a fact, and I I can't change it. Um, but what I can do is use that what I've learned in this process to try to help change that and to try to help create a more equitable world, a more socially just and spiritually fulfilling and, and, and environmentally sustainable world, which happens to be the mission statement of the Pachamama Alliance that I'm one of the co-founders of. Um, so I think the, the question is, if you're born into a certain situation, a privileged white male as I was, uh, rather than trying to deny that, you try to, you try to overcome it as much as you possibly can but it's always going to be there mm -hmm. on one level or another. So how do you use it to try to turn things around so that future generations won't look at it quite the same way? I write about it as much as I can. I speak out about it. And uh, so I think that's, it, it does give me a forum that other people might not have. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was an economic hitman, I was chief economist, that was my official title at a major consulting firm for 10 years, that also is, is a great privilege. And I probably received that privilege, not just because I went to school and, and got an education as an economist, but it probably has something to do with the fact that I was a privileged white male. In fact, that company back in the, when I went to work for, for them in, in 1970, uh, you know, was almost entirely, the, the partners were all privileged white males. And I probably wouldn't have been hired if I hadn't have been. That's terrible. I know, I just like, cause you were saying like, well, they're saying, oh, well, he can tell us he's like, you know, lives up on this nice island and he's got these woods and, you know, and, and it's easy to say from that side of the chair. And yet I'm here, I'm unemployed. There's, you know, no future hope for me. And, and I'm supposed to buy in. And, and no. this is my, this is, I think this is a dilemma, not that you're just faced with, that as healers, as, as light workers, you know, how do we, you know, I, I, I've been guilty of it when I go on Amazon and I looked and see, oh, well, this one's cheaper. It does the same thing. And, and I have to really shift that. And luckily, I can afford to pay for the one that was made in America or the one that was made, you know, with, with, by, with, by hand. But I was watching uh, uh, Hunters. Have you seen Hunters? No. 
oh, you should see hunters. And they, there's a scene in there when the, they brought the Nazi scientists to the United States to to do because they were brilliant minds and why waste a brilliant mind over in Russia when we could bring them to the United States. And one of the thoughts of there was when they created a weapon of mass destruction, it was corn syrup. Yeah, that was like, I hope I just didn't ruin it for you. But that, <laughs> but that it's so insidious that yeah. we're like, when you're sitting home with all of this time to think, you know, I suggest reading this book because I really appreciated that you went into this honesty about where you came from and how you got there. And, you know, and and, and, I, and I just say that because I've worked with a lot of LGBTQ people and, you know, I'm privileged if I'm not a transgender, I'm privileged. You know, there's always some level up. So, you know, do we have to have this whole economy die? You know, does does the internet have to fail? Does all of this stuff have to go before we wake up? Or can we hear the messages from, you know, the privileged white male and, you know, somebody else? Can we, can we, can we be, can we actually be the, 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 the openers of the door for other people? Yeah, those are important questions. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I've, I've always, I've struggled many times. People often ask me, so, you have regrets for having been an economic hitman and done the terrible things that I did as that, which were totally legal and, and in fact advocated by business schools. Everything I did was, I thought at the beginning was totally the right thing. It's what I've been taught in business school. It's what I've been taught what the World Bank advocated and still does and business schools still do too. But I, I came to realize that what I was doing was colonizing, was creating a new empire. And when I realized that eventually, it took me a little while, but it, it, you know, I was out there for 10 years I got out and, and committed to using what I knew to turn that around for the rest of my life. This is beginning in 1980 and trying to turn it around for a long time. But I've often been asked, do you regret what you did? It's a very interesting question and it, it ties in with the whole idea of being a white, a privileged white male. Do, 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 do I regret it? Well, I, it doesn't do me any good to regret that. I'm, I'm, I was born that way and I can't change it. I can, I can change the way I react to it, though, I can change trying to be privileged and, and using what I do have, the privileges I do have, um, to change, turn things around. I would have the same answer to, do I regret having been an economic hitman? And that is, I regret. I wish I hadn't done some of the things I did. But on the other hand, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have known the system from the inside, and I wouldn't have the credibility that I have today when my resume says I was chief economist and my books I write about economics, and I'm invited to speak at huge uh, business forums and to big corporations. Uh, and to and every time I do, I'm, I pull no punches. It's like, you've got to turn around. You've got to change the way you're doing things. You've got to stop focusing on short-term profits and really look at social issues. Look at how are you treating the minorities? How are you treating people in other countries uh, that, that, that you're not paying decent wages to? How are you treating the environment? And so it gives me a stage that I try to use. So yes, I'm a privileged white male, and and I wish that that wasn't that situation. We didn't have that situation in the world today, and I think there's many other people in my position that would say something similar. That that the, the important thing is, what do we do with that? How do we use our privileges uh, to make a better world uh, for all of us, and to and to feel good about ourselves? Uh, you know, it, it is, there's no there's simply no way I can get out of being a white male. And to drop my privileges and go and become a street person on the streets of Seattle wouldn't help anybody in any way. And I probably still would be privileged because I'd still be a white male. And amongst the street people, I'd probably be treated differently by police officers than someone who wasn't a white male, even as a street person. So even, so there's just no way. There's no way out of this. There's no way it's out kind of, of a, a circular type of question. But let's get back to the book. So. I really enjoyed your stories. I really enjoyed your honesty. And the other thing that I could sense was that you had to do some deeper healing in order to write this book. Yeah. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Yes, and I think I could say that about all the books. You know, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which was, came out in 2004, was an incredibly cathartic experience. You know, I really I had to go deep into confessing to myself in order to write the confession. 
and all of the books, even the shamanic books also that came before that, uh, I, I think they've all been in their own way since they're all pretty much autobiographical, they include lots of other people's stories. Uh, there's that aspect that's autobiographical. They, they've all involved a great deal of, of introspection and confessing and, and also looking at, so what do I do with all this? How do I make this bigger? How do I help my daughter and my grandson and they're all of their brothers and sisters all over the planet? How do I help my brothers and sisters in the Amazon who I've spent years with and continue to go back all the time? And, you know, I, I, every year I take groups of people to them and to the Mayan shamans in Guatemala and the Kogi shamans in, in the mountains of Colombia. People, can, you can check that out on Dream Change, uh, excuse me, on johnperkins.org. And that uh, may change. Yeah, yeah, it may very well. And in fact, we're doing, you know, if people pre-order the book at my website, johnperkins.org, you'll also be invited to be part of a Facebook group where we do uh, every two weeks. Uh, we do a program for everybody on there. And the next one, which is two weeks from this past Thursday, a Mayan shaman who, who lives in, in Guatemala will be on with me. Uh, so we're, we're we're bringing these people in to our into everybody's lives through the magic of this technology, and he's he's able to get online there. We've got another shaman we work with deep in the Amazon and through satellite technology. We bring him on a Zoom call, so or her also, and so um, you know, yeah, we may not I may not take people there anymore. We may do it all virtually. Who knows? So is it the the website the Facebook group called Touching the Jaguar or what's it called? Well, yeah, you can go to touchingthejaguarbook.com, but the easiest thing is to remember is just go to johnperkins.org. Okay, it's all there. It's all there. And is the book delayed now that um, with is it coming out? It's coming out this month. It come, it's always been planned to come out June sixteenth, okay, and, and still is. And you've been you've been holding up a pre-copy, which I just held up too. But I just two days ago received. Oh, that's always fun. The hardback, the real, the, the final hardback. Nice. Um, I got some advanced copies of it. It's all printed, but the schedule through the distributors, this whole process of selling books, as you know, right. in bookstores and Amazon are not able to are not to release it. They're not allowed to release it until June 16th. That's the date when it gets released by everybody. So if people pre-order it now, they'll get these other benefits of the Facebook group, and they'll get the book sometime shortly after June 16th or maybe on June 16th. Well, sometimes Amazon ships early, too. Well, and they can order through their local bookstores. If you oh, go that's good, too. That, that's, a, that's a good first step. If you go through johnperkins.org, you get indie-bound books, which are all the independent bookstores. You can go through your local bookstore. You can go through any, any, any place. And and still be part of this Facebook group. And we've got, I think, about 500 people, I think, now on this group. And we every two weeks, we get together. And and uh, next week, as I said, in the next one, we're with Mayan Shaman. Who's the Mayan Shaman? That, the one after that, we're with Lynn Twist, who's the author of Soul of Money. We'll be talking about shape-shifting money. And she and her husband and I are the three co-founders of the Pachamama Alliance. So, and we've got other people coming up over the next couple of months. Great. I'll, I'll come check it out and yeah I'm holding up the, the, the copy that they sent me well this has been really insightful and the the book is really well worth the read and I, I was frankly it's the first book that I've read in a very long time because when I was writing Winds of Spirit I didn't want to I didn't want to you know Hank Wesselman said to me oh did you read no and you know Sandra goes well no I did. Yep. I, I wanted to make sure that the information the winds were providing me was coming directly from the winds, and I did not. I did not. And so, truthfully, with this with this COVID, I had a, a, an afternoon, and I sat down, and, and it's a great read. And I look forward to actually looking this weekend at the the other part of it to actually go through and see what do I want to do with the rest of my life. I happened to work for a company that was the middle company was just wiped out this week so it's a timely mm -hmm. conversation and now it's to the big mothership and what does that mean and it's profits before people and why am I there you know like why am I there and I think I'm still there helping addicts and as long as I can find why I'm there and what my my sole purpose is of doing there I can still work within that system so he's not saying quit your day job if you're one of the few people who have a day job left but it's really a good time to reassess. What would you like to leave us with some parting words for this? Well, 
Yeah, Renee, I'd just say I think we're blessed to be born at this time. Um, a number of years ago, I took a group to um, my, uh, uh, a Quechua shaman high in the Andes Mountains of, of Ecuador. A woman named, wonderful name of Maria Juana. Yeah, I'm barely. I read her about her in your book. Yeah, yeah, it's in the book. The story's in the book. The, 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 the short version is, you know, someone asked, um, and I was doing the translating, and someone asked, so Maria Juana, how do we save the earth? And she laughed, you know, she said, well, the earth's not in danger. We are. And some other species will take with us, but we're just, we're, we're like so many fleas. And if we get to be too much of a nuisance, she'll just shut us all off. And then she pointed up at this volcano that hovers over her home in Babura, this sacred volcano. And she said, 20 years ago, that volcano was covered by a massive ice cap. It isn't anymore. Pachamama's twitching. She hasn't shaken us off, but she's twitching. We better listen. And what she said that we should all feel so blessed that we live at a time when we can listen and we can turn things around so we don't get <laughs> shaken off. So I'd say to all your listeners to be grateful that you live at this time. And yes, it's challenging. And some of you are going through some very difficult times. I, I, I'm sure of it. And and yeah, I'm maybe I'm speaking from a place of, you know, wait, male. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> maybe some of you aren't in that place. No, it's, it's absolutely. But the fact of the matter is we are all, I think, blessed to be alive. At the, I think I know we're all blessed to be alive at this time. The shamans would tell you, you were born into a period of history when you were born into it in this particular body, even if you believe in, as I do, in immortality and other lives. You were born here in this situation to the family you were born in because you have a mission. It's, it's important right now at this time, a phenomenal opportunity for change. So my message is we should all feel very blessed to be alive now. And I'd also say, Renee, I'm, I'm grateful for you doing this program and, and bringing these messages out. And I know you do a program also with Sandra Ingerman, who's, who's an amazing shaman and, and amazing writer and person. Um, and you've got that beautiful uh, tiger looking over your shoulder there. You can, you can touch the tiger. <laughs> so thank you so much. I'm t I feel so privileged to be on your show. I really appreciate it. And thank you. And Let's get his book up to number one before it even comes out. And, you know, let's start Let's start here by supporting writers and authors who um, are, are giving us a message that we can hang our hats on. So thank you, John. Thank you, Renee.